The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. The text for this morning comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 38, and the title of the message is Strengthened Through Struggle. So Luke 22, verses 31 to 38, it reads, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now I have a purse. Now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Let's pray. God, as we do each week, we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to be done in our hearts, to open our eyes to your living word. Grant to us true understanding of what Jesus said to his disciples on that final night before his death, that out of those instructions, we might understand what you're saying to us for our lives as well. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned uh, recently, we're in the final stretch in our study of the Luke's gospel. Uh, In Luke's account, it's interesting, there are these big chunks of Jesus' life that are missing that barely get any attention at all. In fact, aside from a single story, we know nothing about his childhood, his teenage years. In fact, the whole decade of his 20s, we know nothing about it in those years when he was a carpenter and before he began his earthly ministry. But when you get to the final week of Jesus, the storytelling slows down to a crawl. And careful detail is given to us about every single day of this Passion Week. In fact, Luke devotes 20% of his gospel to the last seven days of Jesus' life. The message is clear. This is the most important part of the story. In fact, it's the whole point of the story. The fact that Jesus came to die. And for the last several messages, we've been exploring what takes place on Thursday, the day before Jesus will die. Within hours, he's going to be tried and sentenced and nailed on a cross. And so for his final night before his death, he gathers his disciples together for a final Passover meal. Luke chapter 22, verse 15, it says, And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is what Christ longed to do, 
to have a final meal with these disciples, these men that he had spent the last three years with. And despite having spent all this time with them, the disciples reveal how much they have yet to grow because what should have been this really touching final meal with their master descends into this argument about who is the greatest among them. You can just imagine how Jesus felt, you know? This is my body. This is my, this is my blood. And, and he's just having this last meal, and they go, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. And Jesus turns this whole argument on its head when he tells them in verses 25 to 26. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. In other words, people in this world help others out because of the recognition and the personal benefits that they gain from it. These titles of honor like benefactor. But in my kingdom, those who are considered the greatest are the ones who serve others with the greatest humility. And as I mentioned in last week's sermon, this kind of upside-down life doesn't necessarily mean we abandon any sense of self-interest. But our self-interest is combined with faith, focusing on the reward that God has promised to give us one day because of our faithfulness to him. Without this faith God's pro- to, in God's promises, I would argue we cannot live the kind of self-sacrificing life that God calls us to. Because there's just going to be too many times when you try to serve someone and it'll never be recognized. You'll never be acknowledged for it. In fact, you can faithfully serve someone for years, but the situation may never get any better. The person you're serving may never come around and change. Maybe you're stuck in a difficult marriage with a stubborn spouse and that person just never seems to change. Maybe you refuse to cut corners at work and do all the right things and serve your employer well and you feel like you get punished for it while everyone else cheats and cuts corners and gets ahead. You feel like you're left behind. In other words, if you're looking for a reward in this life, you may walk away disappointed and disillusioned. But faith in God's promises enables us to keep serving faithfully, even when nothing is changing, even when we are not acknowledged for the sacrifices that we make on behalf of others. Talking about the great men and women of faith who have gone before us, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And what Jesus said throughout his earthly ministry is that on that day of reckoning, there is going to be this great reversal that happens when everything is going to be turned upside down. And everyone who by faith lived that servant's life will be the greatest in my kingdom. And everyone who exalted themselves and tried to climb that ladder of success and be recognized will be the least in my kingdom. And that's Jesus' bold invitation to every one of his followers. 
Which path are you going to take in life? What is going to be your strategy in this life? Like these great men and women of faith, we're invited to live faithfully before God. Not grabbing for everything we can get in this life, but putting our hopes in His promises and His rewards. Well, before this dinner is over, Jesus has one more bombshell to drop on His disciples. And he directly addresses Peter in this last word. In verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. When Jesus says Satan demanded to have you, the you is in the plural form, you all, meaning Satan has requested to shake down all of you disciples. All 12 of you. But in the very next verse, when Jesus says, I have prayed for you, he uses the singular form of you, focusing particularly on Peter, not all the disciples. It's interesting that Jesus calls Peter Simon, and he says it twice to emphasize the point. He says, Simon, Simon. Why is that interesting? Because Peter has not been called Simon since all the way back in Luke 5 when he was first called by Jesus. Simon was his old name. Jesus gave Simon a new name, Peter. It's as if Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, I've given you a new name and a new identity, but there is still a battle that is going on in your heart with your old name, your old self. That old Simon is still fighting to stay alive in you. Satan is basically asking God for the opportunity to take his best crack at Peter, to, quote, sift him like wheat. To sift wheat is to put it into a container and shake it violently until you've separated the inedible husk from the edible grain. A more modern translation of that phrase would be something like, Simon, Satan has asked to rip you apart. Satan has requested to shred you to pieces. In other words, Satan was telling God, let me put your disciples to the test and see what they're really made of, if their faith is real. Now, that request of Satan sounds eerily similar to what Satan asked to do with another servant of God's named Job, doesn't it? In Job chapter 1, verse 8 to 11, it says this, Then the Lord God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him? and his household, and everything he has. You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. He says, let let me take a crack at Job, and let me see what he's really made of. See if you'll be proud of him after I get done with him. It's a reminder of how vigilant we have to be because we're in the midst 
of a spiritual war. And we have an enemy that is constantly seeking to tear us down. Jesus continues in verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, I want to say this. There's something both very comforting and very disturbing about Jesus' words to Peter, in my mind. It's comforting because Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I'm in your corner. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your faith will not fail. That's encouraging. But it's disturbing to me because, frankly, coming out of the lips of Jesus, it sounds kind of wimpy to me. I know it sounds sacrilegious. I probably should not be saying something like that behind a pulpit. But I'll be praying for you is the kind of stuff we say to each other when we don't know what else to do when we're trying to comfort somebody in the face of an overwhelmingly difficult situation, that's what we say to each other. But this is Jesus. It would be like telling God, God, help me. And God says, I will pray for you. (laughs) No, I am praying to you. You do something. Don't pray for me. If Jesus knew the harm that Satan wanted to do to his disciple, why doesn't he just make an executive decision as master of the universe and prevent the whole thing from happening? Why doesn't Jesus say something like, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked you to sift you like wheat, so I'm going to crush him like a bug (laughs) and keep you from harm. Crush him. Just crush him. That's all God had to say. But let me say this. Jesus responds to Satan and his desire to attack his disciple provides for us one of the most important lessons for understanding how God works in our life. Let me ask you this. Have you ever prayed for someone that you care about that God would change them? Help them come out of their sin struggle. Help them to spiritually grow. And I want to ask you this. What do you think really happens when you pray a prayer like that for that person? That God is going to sprinkle some fairy dust on that person? And they're magically going to have a different personality the next day? Now, I want to say this. Of course, God can change a person pretty dramatically overnight. But I'm going to argue this, that generally speaking, that's not how he answers these kinds of prayer requests. Because he doesn't treat us like robots who just need to be reprogrammed. It would be like if I suddenly woke up one morning and said, oh my goodness, Why do I suddenly feel like taking romantic walks in the park and cleaning our bathroom? (laughs) Oh no, my wife is praying for me again. (laughs) Every wife here wishes that happened like that, right? 
This isn't how God brings about change in the human heart. Jesus understands that there is a process that is vital to spiritual growth of breaking and confession and struggle and failure and surrender. This journey of transformation cannot be rushed. There are no shortcuts. Instead, he allows us to go through different experiences, even difficult trials. And he uses his power to strengthen us in those trials so that we can willingly participate in that change that he desires in us. This is how he respects us who are made in his image. We are not robots. We aren't simply lobotomized by God to become whole different people. Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail through this trial that I'm going to let you go through. I have prayed for you. I want to say this, too. In our impatience and frustration with people, we often try to fix people like we fix bent nails, right? With brute force. And often in the process, we cause more damage than good. We plead. We bargain. We debate. We manipulate. We shame. We threaten trying to get the person to change and do what we want them to do. Even though God is so much more powerful than us, this is not his way. He often redirects us through gentle nudges. It may be the opening of our eyes to see something about ourselves that we were utterly blind to and we never saw before. It may be a new perspective on a situation that we're facing that changes our attitude from one of anger and bitterness to gratitude and hope. It may even involve placing us in difficult circumstances that force us to depend on God rather than ourselves so that God can break us. And let me say this. When we are desperate to see someone change, God's patient and gentle methods often can feel incredibly frustratingly slow and weak, can't they? Get with it already, God. How long do I have to pray for this person before I see an ounce of change here? But this is God's path of spiritual growth that he has ordained for us. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Dallas Willard writes, I think there is perhaps no other scene in all Scripture that so forcefully illustrates the community of prayerful love as this response to Peter. How earnestly Jesus longed for Peter to come outright in his time of testing. But he left him free to succeed or fail before God and man, and as it turned out, before all of subsequent, subsequent human history. He used no condemnation, no shame, no, quote, pearls of wisdom on him, And he didn't use supernatural power to rewire his soul or his brain. It was just this. I have requested concerning you that your faith might not die. It is Jesus' beautiful pattern for us to practice in our relationships to those close to us. God didn't rescue Peter from going through this trial. 
because he knew that Peter would come out on the other side with a faith that was stronger than it was before. That's why Peter is told by Christ, when you come out of this, when you return, meaning you're going to fall away, when you return and come back to me, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen the other disciples who are going to be struggling just as much as you are when I'm arrested and put to death. You're going to have to go through this painful ordeal, Peter. I'm not going to rescue you from it. I'm not going to supernaturally free you from this pain. You're going to know the pain of betraying me, but I'm going to let you go through that because it's going to be an important step in your growth journey. And when you come out of it, your faith is going to be even stronger than it was before. Peter's reaction to Jesus' words is interesting, isn't it? In verse 33, but he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. It's interesting, within hours they'll be in the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to pray, Gethsemane. And Jesus warns Peter again about his betrayal. And there in the garden, Peter replies in Mark chapter 14, verse 29 to 31, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. What bravado, huh? I love the way Philip Ryken summarizes Peter's reaction. That's Peter for you. Often in error, but never in doubt, right? I love that. Often in error, but never doubting himself. You see, Peter had a false confidence that rested not in God, but in his own courage, in his own strength of character. Ah, even though everyone else falls, I will not, Lord. Not this guy. Not the rock, right? He was absolutely certain he would never abandon Jesus, never leave his side, no matter what was about to happen. But in just a few hours, that total confidence was going to be completely shattered by his cowardice. Even in front of a young girl, he couldn't hold his ground and denied Christ. And the night is going to end with Peter denying Christ three times and crying in a corner in the shadows, bitter tears of shame and regret. I don't want to ask you, how does a guy bounce back from a failure like that? How do you get back on your feet and have the strength or courage to keep following Jesus and moving forward when you've done something like that? It's an important detail that Jesus prayed specifically that Peter's faith would not fail him. What Jesus was saying was this. No matter where your journey takes you, Peter, No matter how spectacularly you're going to fall short and fail, it's your faith that's ultimately going to bring you back to me. In this sense, faith is like an anchor, a lifeline that fastens you to Jesus no matter what storms you go through. No matter how badly we fail, no matter how many poor choices you make, no matter how viciously you are attacked, how much pain you endure, faith alone is what will pull you back to God who alone can restore you. And Jesus knows this. And so he says, what I have focused on, of everything you're about to go through, Peter, as my disciple, is your faith. 
I have prayed that whatever beating you're going to take this night, your faith will sustain you and bring you back. Peter's confidence in himself needed to be shattered so that his life could be rebuilt on the sure foundation of faith in God. That's why Peter was strengthened by his trial. Even though he betrayed Jesus, through that experience, he, his faith grew and he came to realize that his ability to stand was only because of God's faithfulness to him. This is the faith that the Apostle Paul confessed when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 to 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. And I want to say that this is the work that God needs to do in your life and mine as well. Where does your confidence lie? In your own strength? In your own history? Or is it really faith in God's goodness that no matter what trials you face, it is God that is going to bring you back to himself? I think this is, let me share this. As I was praying through this message this week, one of the repeated things that God was burdening my heart during the sermon prep was, how many people in ICC have a burden of prayer for somebody that they care about in their life that isn't changing? The, the pain of interceding for somebody who is lost, who is hurting. And I think there's a tremendous amount of frustration, isn't there, that comes with that burden. What's wrong, God? Why are you so weak? Why don't you just fix this person? Why don't you just fix this situation? Make it all better. If you're God, show yourself. And I think God is inviting us to see things from a different perspective. In fact, Jesus is teaching us how to pray for those who are going through struggles in our life. Pray that their faith would uphold them. Pray that whatever dark seasons they may endure, their faith would sustain them. Pray that through all the challenges they will face and all the storms they will endure, that their faith would cause them to cling to God. Pray that their faith would bring them back to God even after the bad choices that they're making for themselves. It is ultimately faith that will lash them to the mast of Christ and help them through the storms of life. The conversation at the Last Supper ends with a confusing exchange. In verse 35 to 36, then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Jesus is referring to the previous mission trips that he sent his disciples on. In Luke 9, he sent out the 12, and in Luke 10, he sent out the 72. And each of these short-term mission trips, the command was the same to his disciples. Don't take any food. Don't take any money. In fact, don't even take a change of clothes because all of that is going to be provided for you 
from the people that are, you are ministering to. They're going to look after you. It's interesting that in those days, earlier years, Jesus was incredibly popular throughout Israel. And so as his disciples went from village to village, they were warmly received with a warm meal, change of clothes, a warm bed. That's what they could expect wherever they went from village to village. But what Jesus is telling his disciples is this. We're at a turning point here. Everything is going to change with my death. What Jesus is saying to them is, the mission doesn't end here, but you're not going to be welcomed anymore. My people have declared their verdict about me, and they have labeled me a criminal worthy of death. And you as my followers who are going to follow in my footsteps are going to receive the same hate, the same opposition, the same attacks that I suffer. And so he says, from now on, you better bring an extra change of clothes. You better have some self-protection on you. You better be ready for the battle because the battle is going to be intense. As it says in verse 37, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is saying, the world's conclusion is that I'm a criminal. I'm their enemy. And therefore, they're going to hate you like they hate me. John chapter 1, verse 10 through 11 says it like this. Speaking of Jesus, he was in the world, And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, it's confusing because it sounds like Jesus is speaking literally here for the disciples to arm themselves. But it's pretty clear from what's about to transpire in a little bit in the story that Jesus was speaking figuratively, not literally, because... A few short hours from now, when they come to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He whips out a sword. He cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant's ear, right? And he lops it off. And Jesus doesn't go bare arms, you know, and it turns into a great Braveheart moment, you know, where they all attack. doesn't happen. Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, what are you doing? Why'd you cut off the guy's ear? He says, put away your sword. He says, this is not my kingdom. This is not what we've come here to do. It's clear that Jesus was speaking figuratively of speaking about the opposition that they were going to face when they go on his mission and represent him. But it's interesting how many times in the Gospels that the disciples are utterly clueless. When Jesus is speaking spiritually, they take it literally. So they kind of look among themselves and and they produce two swords. They go, we got two swords. In verse 38. And then Jesus says something interesting. It says, that's enough. Now, what it sounds like is they manage to whip up two swords, and Jesus says, that'll do. We have enough weapons. <laughs> but that's actually not what he's saying. He's actually using a, a Jewish expression that basically is saying, like, oh, enough. You know, like, that's what Jesus is actually saying. Going, like, you don't get it. But I, you, you don't understand what I'm trying to say. I didn't actually literally want you to produce swords for me. It's not what I'm saying. So basically, he just ends the conversation and says, enough, enough. Let's go, <laughs> and let's go pray at Gethsemane, you know. Jesus' words did come true. 
life became unbelievably and unbearably difficult for these 12 disciples after Jesus died. And wherever the gospel spread, they were attacked from every side, persecuted. Decades later, Peter would be given another chance to represent his Savior. And this time, he did not shrink back. According to church history, Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worth dying the same death of his master. In fact, five of the 12 disciples would be crucified. Every single one of them, except John, would die a violent death for the sake of the gospel. And not one of them shrank back and denied Christ in that moment. And this wasn't because they had suddenly become courageous heroes, but because of God's faithful and unrelenting work of growing their faith, because he was with them, strengthening their faith that they would not fail. Let's pray. The overwhelming burden of prayer during this week for me as I was preparing this message was what I just shared with you earlier. I think for a lot of you here at ICC, there are these people in your life that burden your heart, people that you care about deeply and love with everything you have. And you want more than anything for them to come to Christ and love God and grow spiritually. And you are frustrated that that's not happening in a time frame of your liking. And you feel like God is so weak. That why, why are you so impotent, God? I pray and pray and pray, and nothing seems to change. And I think what God is inviting us to do this morning is to pause before his word and understand how Jesus himself dealt with Peter's failure. He said, Peter, you're going to fall. You're going to fall spectacularly. You're going to fail miserably. And I'm not going to save you from that. I'm not going to magically wave my hand and make everything good. I'm not even going to magically wave my hand over you and rewire you so that you don't struggle anymore. Because that's not how I work. But I'm in your corner. I am by your side. I am fighting for you. And when you finally realize that, that's when your faith is going to grow. To take your eyes off of yourself and look to me. If I'm describing you this morning, I'm inviting you to pray to Jesus like that. Lord, I realize that all my confidence was built on myself, what I thought about myself. My entire life needs to be rebuilt like Peter. In the face of my failure and weakness, on your faithfulness, and provision for me. And if the burden in your heart is for somebody else in your life, I want to invite you to pray that prayer of surrender that simply says, whatever you've got to bring this person through, God, let their faith not fail, but let them return to Christ stronger than they ever were before. Get them through the storm, Lord. Open their eyes to see what they cannot see. Whatever your burden is this morning, can I just invite you to come before God, this gentle, loving Savior, faithful to the end, the truest friend that we have, 
just come before him and say, God, it is only because of you, by your faithfulness that any of us will stand. When I am weak, then I am strong. I lean on you, my help, my provider. Just pray that for a few minutes, will you, as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response. Let's pray.